morning, friends. Welcome to The Well. My name is Ryan Gear. I'm the pastor here. If you're new with us, you're our guest, and we're glad you're here. And if you'd like to let us know, just text the word WELCOME to 480-530-7234. It'll text you back with a digital connect card. Just fill it out and tell us about yourself, and you'll get more information about The Well. Thanks for being with us today. We appreciate you. And today we're continuing in our series, Not That Kind of Christian. Now, we want to be known by what we're for here at The Well. We want to take the positive approach and not be known by what we're against. And at the same time, when we say not that kind of Christian, we all know who we're talking about, don't we? We can picture that kind of Christian who looks down their nose at other people. They're judgmental. Maybe they view themselves as the moral police of society. Or there are people who feel a loss of power somehow in the United States, and they're willing to join with politically authoritarian movements to try to regain this lost sense of power or to even force the country to live according to their religion or to even uh, seek privilege for their own race. There's a connection with white Christian nationalism when we talk about that kind of Christian. Maybe you know self-professing Christians who just see everything in very simple black and white terms. They seem to be anti-intellectual. They have simple answers. They're single issue voters. Maybe they're anti-science. And we see lots of self-professing Christians who appear to be that kind of Christian. And what we're doing in this series is we're proclaiming, we believe there's a different way to follow Jesus Christ in 2022 America than that kind of Christian. We want to follow the Jesus of the Gospels, the real Jesus that we read about in the, in the Bible. And, and interestingly enough, that Jesus tends to look much different than the Jesus of that kind of Christian. And so every week in this series, we've been looking at, at theological questions and difficult social issues. And we're thinking about how the real Jesus would answer those questions or approach these difficult issues. And today, we're discussing what is the most controversial issue in modern American history. And that's the issue of abortion. Now, there are some people who would ask, why would a pastor be crazy enough to talk about abortion in church. No matter what you say, 50% of the people are going to disagree. They may be angry or offended. To answer that question, I would say, touche. You have a point. And at the same time, when we discuss difficult issues as Americans, if we can't talk about difficult issues in church, then where can we talk about them? If we can't talk about them in an environment in which we're supposed to love our neighbors as ourselves, then what hope is there for us to talk about complex issues? And so we're approaching the issue of abortion today humbly and with compassion. We're willing to listen and learn and be open and not judgmental, not look down at people who think differently than we do. And we have an opportunity to understand and grow and maybe see a view of, of this issue that we haven't seen before. So I want to give a few disclaimers as we begin. First of all, I'm a man talking about abortion. Some of you ladies were probably thinking, I, I hope he'll get to that. And you have a point. Uh, somebody might ask, could a, could a female pastor talk about abortion more effectively than a male pastor? I think, I think so. And, and so I just want to acknowledge that I will never have to directly face the question of whether or not to have an abortion. That's, that's a good place to start. And then secondly, 
let's acknowledge the obvious that abortion is an incredibly emotional topic. How could it not be? We're talking about a debate between the rights of women and a debate about when life begins. And that will always be emotional. It will always be controversial. And you, you may listen to something that I say here in the sermon and you might feel emotion well up in you. And if that happens, I just want to say that's okay. And, and that's expected when we talk about such an emotional topic. And then I also want to say for many people, this is not just a political issue. It's a personal issue. I assume that in every congregation in America, there are women who have obtained an abortion. And as I speak about abortion, I want to speak about abortion as a pastor, as somebody who cares about people and understanding that life is difficult and messy. And we as human beings find ourselves in situations we didn't expect to be in. And so my tone today is going to be one of understanding and compassion. And that might be the most important thing to say. And then lastly, I want to be fair to both views today. My goal today is not to tell you what to think about abortion. It wouldn't work if I did. My, my goal today is to be fair to both sides of this, this, this issue. I'm going to do my best to present the pro-life view of abortion and then do my best to present the pro-choice view of abortion. And my goal is that each side would feel like I have represented their views fairly. And then at the end, I'm going to make a, a point about abortion that I believe is crucial for all of us as followers of Jesus Christ in 2022 America to understand. And so I'm going to start with some basic statistics about abortion. I find that some folks maybe don't have an accurate picture of abortion in the United States. And so First of all, the abortion rate is the lowest it's ever been in the United States. According to the Center for Disease Control, the U.S. abortion rate is the lowest it's been since abortion was legalized in 1973. Abortions peaked in 1980 and have been declining steadily ever since. The number of abortions performed now is less than half of what it was in 1980. The birth rate is declining in the United States as well. Teen pregnancy is declining, and, and it's thought that the use of contraceptives is playing a role in bringing down the birth rate and unwanted pregnancy. Now, we also know that public opinion is mixed on abortion in the United States. According to Pew Research, in 2021, 59% of Americans say abortion should be legal in all or most cases while 39% of Americans think abortion should be illegal in all or most cases. So we know that Roe v. Wade became law on January 22, 1973, and in the 49 years since the Supreme Court's ruling, public opinion hasn't really changed that much. There is a major correlation between religious views and views on abortion. White evangelicals and conservative Catholics tend to be the most opposed to abortion. Abortion laws vary around the world. Here are the countries of the world where abortion is legal or illegal. Countries in red prohibit abortion. The countries in orange permit abortion only to save a woman's life. The countries in yellow permit abortion to preserve the mother's health. The countries in light blue, we'll, we'll call it turquoise perhaps, 
permit abortion on broad socioeconomic grounds. Blue, essentially on request. The blue countries include the United States, Canada, most of Europe, Australia, South Africa, China, and Russia. And there are some statistics about abortion that may be surprising. 90% of abortions are performed in the first trimester of pregnancy. 66% of abortions are performed at eight weeks or less. 1.3% of abortions are performed in the third trimester. 60% of the women who obtain an abortion have already had at least one abortion. 39% of abortions are medication abortions, not surgical, in which a woman takes a pill that causes the abortion. The current U.S. abortion rate is 12 abortions for every 1,000 women. And that was 30 abortions for every 1,000 women in 1980. Contrary to most other uh, laws, abortion laws in the United States are generally more liberal than abortion laws in Western Europe. That may be surprising to some folks. In Arizona, in 2012, abortion was made illegal after 20 weeks, except for medical emergencies. Uh, Roe v. Wade defines uh, viability at 24 weeks. And so uh, th this Arizona law was blocked by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and Roe v. Wade remains the law in Arizona. And so I just wanted to start with some statistics that may be surprising to some folks. And then now I want to fairly consider both sides of the abortion issue. And like I said before, my goal is that each side would feel like they have been fairly represented in the information we share. So first, let's look at the pro-choice view. And I'm using the, the, the names that folks refer to themselves as uh, pro-choice or pro-life. And so I'll use that common terminology. First of all, a pro-choice person might cite this reason for their position that abortion is an issue of women's rights. A pro-choice person would ask us to see abortion in the light of the struggle for women's rights throughout history. Throughout most of human history, women's lives have been determined by their ability to bear children. Without contraceptives, a woman uh, could expect to have 10 or more children in her childbearing years. So she spends her childbearing years pregnant and raising children. And that, of course, limits her options in life. That, were, that was true in America up until recent generations. So contraception that is effective is an entirely new reality to women in human history and pro-choice advocates see abortion as the woman's final control over her reproductive life and her life options in general. Margaret, Margaret Sanger said, no woman can call herself free who does not control her own body. So a pro-choice person believes that it's within the rights of women to terminate a pregnancy because the fetus in their view is within her body and a part of her body. And then folks who are pro-choice would cite women's health as a reason for their position. Abortion did not begin with Roe v. Wade. Abortions were already taking place illegally in some parts of the country and have throughout human history. Before they were legal in the United States, some women sought abortions that were performed by untrained people who posed a greater risk to women's health 
than today. There's a, a risk, of course, to having an abortion in any setting, but a pro-choice person would remind us that an abortion clinic is far safer than the back alley abortion. So mo most pro-choice people I know desire that abortion be safe, legal, and rare. Although there is a debate about whether the term rare places undue guilt on, on, uh, on women. But most would like to reduce the number of abortions and, and they believe that abortions should be legal to prevent harm to the woman who seeks an abortion. A third reason that folks who are pro-choice might cite for their view is that abortion is connected to economic realities in the United States. Pro-choice persons argue that if the United States had a more robust financial safety net for new mothers especially, higher, wa higher wage jobs, better access to affordable food and diapers and childcare and, and family and medical leave, there would be less need for abortions. The, the Guttmacher Institute reported that 75% of abortions are for low income patients. The U.S. Department of Labor found that only 15% of U.S. private sector workers have access to paid family leave through their employer as of 2017. And various groups report that approximately 25% of women go back to work within two weeks of having a baby, mostly because they can't afford to be out of work any longer than that. So after two weeks, a woman's body is not even healed from giving birth yet. And the United States is the only industrialized country in the world that does not have guaranteed paid family leave for new mothers. And Fortune reported in October of 2018 that childcare costs more than college tuition in 28 states. And so a pro-choice person might point out that, these, uh, that those who oppose abortion often oppose laws like paid family leave and increased minimum wage and, and child welfare programs. Michael J. Tucker said if the anti-abortion movement took a tenth of the energy they put into noisy theatrics and devoted it to improving the lives of children who have been born into poverty, violence and neglect, they could make the world shine. So a pro-choice person might observe that, that many pro-life persons show great concern for a baby until it's born. And then the baby and the mother are on their own. The fourth reason pro-choice persons might cite for their view is that historically we've, we've been able to distinguish between the rights of a fetus and the rights of a mother. Persons who are pro-choice argue that a fetus does not have the same rights as the mother. Now, many pro-choice persons would not necessarily point to the Bible to support their views, but they could. Uh, Exodus chapter 21 verses 22 through 25 states when people who are fighting injure a pregnant woman so that there is a miscarriage and yet no further harm follows, the one responsible shall be fined whatever the woman's husband demands, paying as much as the judges determine. If any harm follows to the mother, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. So if the unborn is injured, there will be a steep fine. If the mother is injured, the penalty will be an eye for an eye, leading a person to, val to believe that the life of the mother is more valuable than the life of the fetus. People who are pro-choice might also cite shame 
attached to unplanned pregnancy, especially in religious environments. The Christian college I attended required an unmarried pregnant woman to leave the campus. That was back in the 90s. And at that time, there was a movement in the United States, uh, and especially in youth ministries, that is now referred to as purity culture. At that time, it was just referred to as, as staying pure. And by that, they meant that a young person should abstain from sex until marriage. Now, I think abstinence is a good thing. I certainly would not argue against that, but the message of what became known as purity culture also instilled a deep sense of shame in many of those young people, including young women in that generation. And, and there is a special kind of burden that was placed on young women. There's a, a website called Retro Report that produced a video of stories of people who grew up in purity culture, and it's called Shamed by Sex, Survivors of the Purity Movement Confront the Past. And I have a video clip actually that's two minutes long that I want to show you. And, and they reference a famous book that was written during purity culture called Why I Kissed Dating Goodbye. And, and then they talk specifically and more seriously about the way purity culture affected young women. Let's watch. Harris's book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, went on to sell over a million copies and as he and others pushed for purity, another more insidious message took root. Well, ladies, I believe you also have a unique opportunity to protect the purity of your brothers in the Lord. What I think you probably are not aware of is how difficult it is for a guy to look at a girl with purity in his heart when she is dressed immodestly. You have no idea how difficult it is. You have no idea. I remember feeling like I was a threat. And I remember feeling like I was a bad person. My sexuality was dangerous. It was something to be feared. The narrative that we've internalized is that pure girls and women protect us all. They ensure by their proper covering up, by their not taking up too much space, whatever it is, that none of us are going to have sexual thoughts and feelings. Klein had left evangelicalism by the time she was 21, but she continued to struggle for years afterward. When I would have any sexual experience with my boyfriend, I would find myself in tears and in a ball in the corner of a bed, crying, my eczema coming out, which it does when I'm stressed and scratching myself until I bled and having a deep shame reaction. I could actually be this close to doing something that if they were right, if the purity movement was right, would make me worthless. She said she was taught to think of herself as worthless. So if a young woman is shamed for how she dresses, imagine what happened to young women who got pregnant out of wedlock. It's worth pointing out that some people may seek an abortion to avoid shame from their religious communities, the very people who tend to oppose abortion. And then finally, a pro-choice person might point out that there is a relationship in the United States between federal and state law and while Roe v. Wade is a federal law, if Roe v. Wade were overturned, 
abortion would not become illegal in the United States. It would become illegal in states that prohibit it, but it would remain legal in states that have already legalized abortion. So overturning Roe v. Wade will not make abortion illegal in the United States. It just means that a woman who lives in a state where abortion would be illegal would have to travel to a state where abortion is legal. If a woman has the financial resources to travel to that state, she now has better access to abortion than a woman who does not have the financial reason or the financial means to travel to that state, thereby putting an undue burden on poorer women. And access to abortion will be determined by a person's income. So that's just a quick, incomplete summary of why a pro-choice person might hold to their position. So now let's discuss why a person might be pro-life. The primary reason a person who is pro-life would give for their view is their belief that life begins at conception and performing an abortion is ending a human life. A pro-life person might say that an unwanted child is called a fetus while a, a wanted unborn child is called a baby. And this is a a heart-wrenching story that illustrates this pro-life view. The local news here in Phoenix aired a story in 2015 about a botched abortion in Phoenix. The mother was 27 years old, the fetus was 21 weeks old, which is close to the age of viability, and the mother had received a medication meant to abort the pregnancy. And the nurse at the abortion clinic called 911 because in the words of the abortion nurse, we are a termination clinic and there was a termination that was performed, but there is a fetus that is breathing now and we need someone to do services. And by that, the nurse meant that now that the, the, the fetus is outside of the mother's body, it is now a baby and we now have to attempt to save that baby's life. It's a very difficult story that illustrates the point that the pro-life person would make that the difference between a fetus and a baby is a very short distance. And secondly, a pro-life person might point out that fetal viability changes over time. Uh, so pro-life legislation is often introduced to limit abortion to terms less than fetal viability, like 20 weeks. The Supreme Court's Roe v. Wade decision set fetal liability at 28 weeks originally, but then it was later revised to 24 weeks because medical science progressed so that uh, a fetus could be viable at an earlier age. Uh, a pro-life person might cite that the, that the difference between the rights of a fetus and an unborn child seemed to be arbitrary. People who are pro-life might say that the rights of a fetus or an unborn child seem to depend on whether the, the mother wants it or not. And they would say that this unborn baby has intrinsic rights from the moment of conception. Now, fourth, of course, those who are pro-life often will point to their religious views to support their views on abortion. According to Pew Research, 75% of white evangelicals believe abortion is morally wrong. 53% of white Catholics say abortion is morally wrong, 
While the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church opposes abortion in all circumstances as well as contraception, 25% of religiously unaffiliated people say abortion is morally wrong. So between unaffiliated persons and white evangelicals, we're talking about a 50-point difference in views on abortion. Most progressive Christian denominations oppose abortion used as a contraceptive. Now, the scriptures that are most often quoted to oppose abortion are Psalm 139 and Jeremiah chapter 1. Psalm 139 says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. And this verse is a powerful piece of evidence that that a pro-life person would cite for their religious views. And at the same time, there are questions that this passage raises being formed in the depths of the earth. And and does God really preordain all the days of our lives before we're born? But uh, the vast majority of pro-life folks who are religious would cite this verse. And finally, those who are pro-life might point to the experiences of some women who have had an abortion. There are women who do not regret having an abortion, but those who are pro-life might point to the experiences of women who do regret having an abortion or women who decided not to get an abortion and they're glad they made that decision. Uh, There's a pastor named Adam Hamilton that many of you are familiar with. He's a pastor of a a church in Kansas City called Church of the Resurrection. It's a, a huge mainline church in Kansas City of of 10,000 or 15,000 members. People in KC call it Six Flags Over Jesus. They're a great uh, congregation who who addresses complex questions and issues like this well. And several years ago, Adam wrote a book called Confronting the Controversies, in which he dealt with difficult questions and issues, including abortion. And in the book, he included a letter that a a woman in his congregation wrote to him about her decision not to have an abortion. She wrote that when she was 17 and her boyfriend was 16, they were invited to a party. And as the night went on, couples paired off and went to various bedrooms and she became pregnant. And her father was furious when he found out. And he set up an appointment with a doctor in Switzerland because this was before Roe v. Wade to have uh, an abortion performed and, and she refused. She decided she wanted to keep the baby, and he told her that he would never welcome her back into his home if she gave birth to this baby. So she moved in with the 16-year-old boyfriend's family, and then they moved to Arizona to uh, give uh, birth and spare the family embarrassment back in Kansas City. They struggled to make ends meet, and they divorced after 12 years of marriage. She never went to college. Uh, She was now a single mother, and And she wrote to uh, Pastor Adam Hamilton, Yes, my life changed dramatically, but to this day that child has been the greatest blessing to me and thousands of others. God prompts him to call his mom when she needs to talk, but doesn't want to bother him. I'm so proud of the husband and father he has become. So many times when I look at him, I think that this person could have ended up aborted. I knew that... This baby was a gift from God. 
I look back sometimes at the college that I missed. My life is different than it could have been, but I wouldn't change it for anything. And then she writes to Pastor Adam Hamilton, Thank you, Adam, for being my gift from God. I never dreamed 36 years ago while I was carrying you that you would have the impact on God's people and me that you do. You are my pastor, my confidant, and my best friend. I love you, Mom. That's Adam's story. Now, regardless of whether you're pro-life or pro-choice, of course, that's a powerful story. And a person who is pro-life might point to that experience as a reason to support their view. If you've never heard my story, I was conceived out of wedlock and my parents uh, were, were young and, and by the time I was born, my biological father was out of the picture and my mom raised me as a single mom and, and, and faced all the difficulties of that. And of course, she chose to give birth to me and I'm thankful for her choice. Now, once again, there are those who are pro-choice and pro-life that would hear my story and think well, that's, a, that's a great story and that it doesn't apply to everybody. A person who is pro-choice would say, those were the circumstances that my mom faced and that was her choice and that women should have the right to make that choice. Well, what is the will of the American people when it comes to abortion laws in the United States? As we said earlier, according to Pew Research, 59% of Americans say abortions should be legal in all or most cases. And, and public opinion can vary from year to year. And, and when I was a teenager, I was not aware that a majority of Americans support legalized abortion. I was raised in an environment uh, that was part of, of what's called the religious right. If you're familiar with that term, it's it's uh, evangelical Christians who get involved in politics and, and they're referred to as the religious right. And it didn't take long to realize that good Christians are supposed to vote pro-life and vote entirely on the issue of pro-life. They were expected to be single issue voters. And no matter what a candidate promised to do with any other issue, if they were pro-choice, you were to vote against them. Abortion was the litmus test as to whether a person was a good Christian or not and how they voted. Now, as I've grown older, I now see a bigger picture of abortion than I did in the past. According to research provided by the Guttmacher Institute, which is a pro-choice organization, women obtain abortions for primarily two reasons, economic reasons and family planning reasons. Abortions for medical reasons are a very small percent of abortions, between one and 2%, usually to save the life of the mother or when the child cannot survive outside of the womb. According to Guttmacher, 75% of all abortions are obtained by women who cite economic reasons as the reason, as the reason she's seeking an abortion. They found that 50% of all women who obtain an abortion live at or below the federal poverty level. Now, if you don't know what that number is, the federal poverty level this year for one person is $13,590. And for a family of four, it's $27,750. Can you imagine being a family of four and having to live on $27,000 a year? Now, a woman who is, who is living at that income level is just struggling to survive. She is sometimes on the verge of homelessness. 
60% of the women who obtain an abortion already have children. So she's struggling to feed the children she already has. She lives in a high crime area and she's concerned for the safety of her children. This is the reality of the vast majority of women who obtain an abortion. And this is the point I want to make, regardless of whether you are a pro-life person or you hold the, the pro-choice view, is that when we think about this issue, that we see it correctly and as a part of the larger picture of doing what is just and right by everybody. Making a, a disadvantaged woman a criminal for having an abortion and not addressing the reasons she cites as having an, for having an abortion reminds me of something Jesus said in, in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 23. Then Jesus said to the crowds and, and to his disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. When I was in college, I took a, a, a class on, on missions and social justice. And the professor was, was the black sheep of religion professors at the school. He was passionate about addressing poverty and, and he was more in touch with real world issues than, than many of the other professors that I had in school. And, and one day in class, some, someone asked a question about the Christian response to abortion. And I'll always remember this professor's answer because it had a profound effect on me. At an evangelical Christian college in rural Ohio, my professor said this, imagine if the pro-life movement took all of the energy it spent trying to make abortion illegal and directed that energy toward addressing the reasons women have an abortion. Which strategy do you think would be most effective at reducing abortions? Now, I sat in stunned silence in this conservative Christian college hearing a professor say that I had never heard another Christian make that statement, that the abortion issue might not be as simple as just making it illegal in order to address the reasons that women have an abortion. Now, if you consider yourself to be pro-life, uh, Tony Campolo was another professor. Uh, he was a professor of sociology at Eastern University, and he considers himself a progressive evangelical. And he's the founder of an organization called Red Letter Christians. And he gave an interview to Religion News Service in, in 2013 and said this, 75% of all abortions in America are driven by economic forces. That is to say, it is young women who are pregnant, working at minimum wage, with no health insurance or possibility of daycare, with no prenatal or postnatal help, and who knows if she has the baby, it's going to cost her thousands of dollars in hospital care. So we have to begin to ask, what's, what's this woman going to do? 75% of the people who've had abortions were driven by economic forces. And when asked by the Guttmacher Institute, would you have an abortion if it wasn't for these economic choices? They said, no, we would not have had an abortion. So if... So many of these women say, no, if I had the means to afford to raise the child, I would have raised the child. For us to ignore that reason seems to me to be unjust. 
it seems to place an impossible burden on the shoulders of women living at or below the federal poverty level instead of addressing the actual reason that she has an abortion. And of course, there are many politicians who would call themselves pro-life, but they tend to oppose the services that would actually address the reasons that she had to have an abortion. So abortion is an economic issue. And then the other 20% of women who had an abortion said they obtained an abortion because of an unplanned pregnancy. This is a family planning issue. It is true that some who are pro-life also oppose contraception. They believe that abstinence is the only way to prevent a pregnancy. And of course, uh, in the real world, uh, that is true for some people, but contraceptives are proven to bring down the birth rate and the rate of unwanted pregnancy. And so there are young women who are raised in, in religious households that oppose contraception, or they don't talk with her about contraception because if, she's, if she is familiar with contraception, that means she plans to have sex. And, and that would be wrong because they expect abstinence only, so contraception is never addressed. And then she finds herself in a real-world situation where she is now pregnant because she had no exposure to contraception. And so there's often the, the double bind, the catch-22, of a young woman who was raised in a religious household who is not given access to contraception, but then also is expected not to have an abortion. And so as a father, I have two boys. I don't have, I don't have a daughter, but as a father of two boys, the time will come, and, and for the oldest one, it's coming very, very uncomfortably soon, where I'm going to have a conversation with my boys, and I'm going to hold up a condom, and I'm going to explain to them, to them what this is. And I'll say to them, if you can wait to have sex until you're married, that's great. That's, that's the only 100% uh, guaranteed way to not have an unwanted pregnancy. But if you decide that you're going to have sex before marriage, I'll explain how to use a condom. If I had a daughter, I would have a conversation with her about contraceptives and, and what an IUD is, and at least equip her with, with knowledge that she can use based on the choices that she makes. Uh, Switzerland, for example, has an abortion rate almost half below what the abortion rate in the United States is. And Switzerland has found that the key to reducing abortions are number one, sex education with teaching on contraception and availability of contraception, and two, a healthy socioeconomic environment for young mothers. Is anyone shocked by these two findings? They seem like common sense solutions to me that are easily attainable in the wealthiest country on earth for anyone who wants to reduce the number of abortions. So I've done my best to fairly represent both views and then explain how my own view changed over time as I saw a bigger picture of abortion in America. I see that abortion is a part of a, of a larger story in America. Uh, 
about wealth inequality and, and, and political games in which politicians will, will use abortion as a carrot to get some people to vote for them while they don't address the plight of the most vulnerable women who, who are most likely to obtain an abortion. And so to me, a, a truly pro-life position would be to address the, the actual reasons that women have an abortion and to do the best we possibly can to reduce the number of abortions performed in the United States. And that would make life better for everybody, including those young mothers and their children. As, as people who want to follow Jesus Christ, our faith requires us to look at everyone, including these young mothers or young potential mothers, with compassion and with the values of justice and righteousness to do what is right by everybody. Perhaps that's what it means to value life. I invite you to pray with me. Oh God, thank you for people on both sides of this issue who are sincere in their convictions and they care about the rights of women and the, the value of all life. We thank you uh, for people who, who do their best to think through their position and who are open to new information and who hold their beliefs with sincerity. And at the same time, God, we realize that we live in a country in which abortion is a political football and political games are played using abortion to get votes, to entice single issue voters, or to demonize some people. And God, as people who want to follow Jesus, our faith requires us to move beyond the partisan games and address all of the issues that we've talked about today. Issues of justice and righteousness and valuing all life, including the life of young mothers or potential young mothers and issues of economic justice and wealth inequality and, and issues of family planning and, and thinking deeply about what it means to do right by everybody in this country so that so many of these women don't have to make a decision based on economic reasons or family planning reasons. God, thank you for your scripture that teaches that all of us are loved and we are valuable in your sight. And we thank you, God, that we get to extend that value to everyone around us. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen.